Benjamins, baby. Uh huh, yeah. Well, not quite. I'll be talking about more than just the Benjamins. Welcome to Fintech Beat, where the intersection of finance, technology, and policy come together. And I'm your host, Chris Brummer. The future of finance is now. Facebook is reportedly building a cryptocurrency-based payment system. Digital cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin, there are thousands of them, most you've probably never heard of. The IMF and the World Bank are launching one, JP Morgan has one, and now Facebook is working on one too, according to the Wall Street Journal. So what does this mean for how this is slated to impact not just the cryptocurrency industry, but also the world's big tech and big finance? I believe that it should be as easy uh, to send money to someone as it is to send a photo. To get to the bottom, I asked some of the best experts in the field. Brad Carr, the Senior Director of Digital Finance at the Institute of International Finance, and Amy Devine-Kim, the Chief Policy Officer of the Chamber of Digital Commerce. Also, Tim Swanson, the Founder and Director of Research for Post Oak Labs. I caught up with all of them at a conversation I organized at the Georgetown University Law Center. So I, th- I guess I'll start off with you, uh, Tim. Some of the biggest news recently, particularly when you're talking about cryptocurrencies and uh, stable coins and uh, new applications for uh, distributed ledger technology, uh, has come from the entrance of new kinds of players, but they're new familiar players, particularly big tech and big finance, with this announcement uh, both by JP Morgan and Facebook that they are uh, entering into this space. And there's a a lot of talk and a lot of buzz about this uh, really reshaping the cryptocurrency landscape. Maybe could you sort of help walk us through what exactly are the kinds of things that they're looking to do and and why is it that they're interested uh, in in, uh, blockchain technologies uh, more generally? Uh, Quick question, who works for JP Morgan? Anyone here? (laughs) Or, Or Facebook? All right, so. Um, yeah, the two that I guess I'll mention, and thanks for that, um, are uh, JPM coin. Um, I know that's been mischaracterized uh, by some calling it diamond coin, and some people aren't excited about it. That's fine. You don't have to be excited about it. I'm not, I'm not here to shill, shill a coin or anything like that. But um, what, what's, what's, the reason why JPM coin was created is, is a means to an end. They needed a way internally, or on this, this network that they created called IIN, uh, they needed a way to, to effectively settle these different instruments that they may have created on behalf of whatever participants are on the network, rather than having to rely on the outside, uh, effectively, the settlement uh, rails that take three to five days. So if you could have on-chain cash, then you could provide effectively instant settlement and uh, therefore get rid of uh, the, this locked-up capital. Uh, for example, if you look at the Nostro Vostro uh, accounts globally, uh, it, as an aggregate in the world, it's like nine, ten trillion dollars of capital that's sitting there at any given time. So again, obviously, JPM coin is not going to uh, revolutionize that entire. So let me just 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 jump in there, uh, just to sure. make make sure. sure. So you, what you're basically saying is, uh, JP Morgan has customers. Mm. They need to service those customers, mm. and by creating a new kind of rail, they're able to um, allow uh, some of their existing customers to settle their transactions faster. Or is it is it faster? Is it supposed to be more, more, um, better security. What, what is it that uh, creating JP Mcoin does that an Excel sheet wouldn't be able to do? Sure. So it's a great question. As it is, as it of this moment in June, it looks like the 
you know, you could have an Excel, Excel chain, if you will, uh, that would be just as effective because you're effectively relying on that one participant. In theory, though, the, the goal for them long term is to uh, enable other participants to potentially validate transactions on the network or even open the network to, to other, other networks. In fact, the long-term goal for them, my understanding is for them to, to actually allow retail participation, not just wholesale interaction. Um, so again, it's a means to an end. It's kind of, I hate calling it boring interbank-related activity, but it is. It's, it's not something that you and I as, as consumers would probably ever touch in the next couple of years. Whereas the Facebook uh, phenomenon, which you were kind of mentioning, uh, I believe since they've taken all of our data now, he wants to take all of our money. Uh, so uh, for what it's worth, uh, Facebook coin, uh, they, they're supposed to do some announcement, I think, on the 18th or so when they review all the information. Un until then, we could only speculate based on what we've heard. But what we've heard so far is it's going to be some, uh, like a basket of, of currencies, kind of like an SDR. Uh, which is a basket of, of four or five different uh, major currencies. Um, so it's kind of a stable coin. We've heard that maybe the network participants are going to be charged up to $10 million to run nodes. So the, the model is very different than JPM, uh, JPM coin, which is kind of a, a means to an end for the, its customers and counterparties, whereas Facebook coin sounds like it's, or sorry, uh, global coin, I think is what they call it, is going to be supposedly for the remittance market, for participants who are, for, for the billion plus users that they have to move money across borders. So ultimately, we're talking about two very different financial products, if we are to believe mm. uh, current reports. That on the one hand, you have Facebook, which is apparently going to leverage some of its messaging for its retail-ish people, normal people. And then you have Facebook coin, which is looking to at least immediately service institutional investors and to service those institutional investors by establishing uh, a, a new rail, a new means of transacting uh, across border. But I guess both of them have a cross border feel to it, right? I mean, because JP Morgan, I'm guessing, has lots of different banks. And then you have Facebook, which has, uh, is going to lever this messaging system for all of its billions of users. And I will get to, for that question, Brad, uh, to, it, maybe if you could. Um, maybe elaborate some of what you've heard or, or thought about in terms of these new uh, 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 financial products or stable coins and, and also any kinds of immediately uh, or immediate regulatory questions. So I think firstly, you know, if I can distinguish another model as well, and that's that of, of MUFG coin, which I think is probably the most advanced of the, the prototypes we've seen around the world. Whereas the, the JPM coin is targeted in the, the wholesale sector, it's about, you know, the settlement of transactions for, for corporate counterparties, whereas MUFG coin is a lot more retail-oriented. Yeah, MUFG's own marketing is that if you go to Tokyo for the Olympics next year, you'll be paying for your meals around town with, with MUFG coin. Yeah, that notion is more one of, it's trying to modernise a retail payment uh, or point-of-sale transaction. It's essentially enabling you to have tokens of some sort on your phone and paying with those as an alternative to cash. And the Bank of Canada prototype for a, a central bank digital currency is essentially working towards the same sort of model. So you've got a few different variances there. The, the scenario that, that I come up against on the, the JP Morgan one is that I think is going to get really interesting is, so what happens when you end up with one bank holding another bank's coin? You know, if, if let's say Citibank is holding a JPM coin, is that equivalent to holding JPM senior debt in terms of the credit risk profile? Or is it considered to be cash back because it's reserved? Are you convinced of the, the stable coin uh, fixing? Um, or do you start to say, well, actually, this is a different kind of risk profile? And then similarly, if a customer is giving JPM dollars and getting JPM coins back, you know, from a, a ledger perspective of, of how you assess that counterparty risk, are you netting the, the dollars and the coins? 
So you've got a few things there that, that I think are all manageable issues, but are ones that, uh, in terms of the prudential framework, you, you'd need to work through each of those uh, and establish whether or not this is essentially considered equivalent to you know, coins and banknotes under so the existing uh, prudential framework. That's, that's, that's interesting. One of the things that I, I notice uh, when you travel, obviously, to different international regulatory fora is how people look at it, particularly a stable coin, but also any kind of cryptocurrency, depends yep. on where they're coming from. Um, so for those who may not be as familiar with the stable coin, um, they're called stable coins because they're, they're presumably uh, pegged or referenced to a, a certain basket or perhaps even the U.S. dollar, uh, and they're not intended to fluctuate. And uh, the way in which you can create that stability is, is varied, at yep. least. Um, right. and, and, and some of those ways can be just a straight peg or there could be algorithmic um, so, so activities. If, so, so if you're a regulator trying to work out a prudential treatment that you're going to apply to this, one of the questions you'd need to establish is, you know, are you convinced of the, the peg or is this something that, you know, okay, it's fixed today but it may, may well not be in the future? And to segue a little from the commercial bank tokens, you know, one piece we've, we've heard and we've corroborated in a few different places is that the People's Bank of China has been developing a digital currency that would not be fixed against the renminbi. Now, there's a whole host of questions then that come to, to buy with that. You know, is that intended to segregate inward and outward capital flows away from the other currency? Uh, is it something that's intended as a means of a being a trade international trade currency or trade finance currency? Will Chinese industrialists in 10 years' time insist that they're only going to pay you um, in, in digital renminbi instead of in dollars? You know, th there's a whole stack of questions that come about there for something that presumably would be you know, somewhat stable, not entirely volatile. Presumably the PBOC would have an interest in ensuring that that currency is, is not wildly fluctuating day to day and retains some of its value but it would not be fixed against the renminbi in that example. And yep. I was, so if we make one more point, and you, well, you referred to Facebook and you referred to the different treatments and definitions around the world. You know, the, the scenario I find really fascinating is, you know, are you going to have individuals giving Facebook dollars in order to buy Facebook coins, whatever it's called? Um, when we get around and, and have the conversations with central bankers and regulators around the world, and we talk about, you know, would you view the entrance of a big tech firm into finance you know, at what point do you start regulating them in the same way that you regulate a bank or an insurer or what? And quite a lot of central bankers will say, or supervisors will say, that the tripwire is when they start taking deposits. And, and for that reason, a lot of them have, have steered clear of anything that could look like a deposit-taking activity. Um, but if individuals are putting their money into Facebook and being given Facebook coins as a result, that starts to look a bit like a deposit. What we've seen historically not is that um, you know, they could just be money transmitters too. If they're not actually taking a deposit, mm -hmm. but operating a, a, a receiving um, to transmit on to another location, you know, you see companies like Microsoft and others that have already received their licenses to be money transferred. A financial institution, but just mm. a, a different than deposit-taking financial institution. It'll be interesting to see how that plays out in this scenario. It's got well, quite a perhaps about the, the, the timing of the transactions and, and you know, whether or not consumers are being encouraged to you know, deposit for some, put deposit, invest a, a chunk of money <laughs> for some period for these tokens that they can then redeem in due course, and whether they're incentivised by coupons or discounts or somewhere else that, that starts to look a little bit like interest, or whether it's that you're just buying the tokens each time that you need them for the, the transaction, which would look more of a, a money transfer well, nature. Uh, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how it plays out, because mm. um, it could also be prepaid access. 
Hmm. If you, you know, put $100 in and then you can use that yeah. to use on the platform, it'll be yeah. soon as soon as I mean, we're yeah, yeah. speculating. Maybe we'll find out on June 18 or, or maybe it'll be quite a long time after that. Well, I know that Amy has actually taken a keen interest in the upcoming uh, G20 uh, conversations, not just, you know, the, the very question of, of money transmission has to do in part it depends on which state you're talking about. Money transmitter laws are, are largely state-based in the United States, and they have to deal with um, uh, some safety and soundness um, issues with individual money transmitters, and you have to sort of get a license and the like. Uh, when you get to the federal level, where you're not necessarily asking about money transmission per se, but you're concerned about market integrity, money laundering, and the other issues that are sort of embedded in the flow of money, uh, uh, those kinds of issues start to take on an international dimension as well. And, and, and Amy, I know you've been very, very involved in thinking through some of the money laundering um, issues. What is the state of things? What do you predict uh, in terms of uh, new rules and new approaches coming out uh, from the G20? Yeah, well, <clears throat> I mean, just to start to kind of, for context, I mean, certainly, you know, Bitcoin being the first um, iteration of blockchain that we've seen, it, it was a peer-to-peer -peer payment system that's triggered financial services concerns, so that's, and, and financial services regulatory concerns, whether it's a J.P. Morgan coin or securities laws or you know, anti-money laundering. That's why we've seen a lot of um, headwinds, I think, in the financial services space and how do they apply. Um, the U.S. was a, a front runner, I think, in, in addressing that in 2013 with Treasury issuing their guidance, um, which determined that uh, the exchangers and administrators in this space were um, money transmitters and therefore money a type of financial institution, a money services business um, in the US. Um, so then that's the US federal perspective and then what you're referencing is the FATF, the Financial Action Task Force, is an intergovernmental body that um, puts out um, recommendations with respect to anti-money laundering that about 200 countries then you know, trickle down and implement um, in their host country. So what they're looking at now is you know, in October, they created a concept called virtual assets, which is, I think, maybe the first time I've ever seen it called virtual assets by a government or governmental-type body, um, and then applied the certain of the AML recommendations that they make to what they're calling virtual asset service providers. So that raises a couple of questions. I mean, first of all, I'm sure we all know virtual assets can actually be a pretty broad category. These aren't yes. all financial instruments. Um, and they're not so all cryptocurrencies, necessarily. Right. I mean, typically, like we've seen in the U.S., you've dealt with it as a, a, a substitute for funds or currency, you know, more like a substitute for money. Um, their definition goes a little bit beyond that and says, you know, used for payment or investment. And, you know, as we're seeing in the securities um, dynamic, what's an investment can be blurred. Or you could, some people could view it as an investment and some people could be using it as a, on a platform, which I think is a whole other thing we can all debate about maybe at another time. But... Um, and so, so that kind of argument is going on. Um, where does that fit? And there's one in particular that's going on right now that's a bit of a hot topic for some, which is how to apply this with respect to a very specific wire transfer rule, which applies for transfers between financial institutions of $3,000 or more. And in that case, you would have to obtain certain information about both the person originating the payment and the person receiving it. And so if you think about that in a blockchain context, um, what do you know about the person originating that, and then what do you know about the person receiving it? And so that's where some of the consternation comes in and where regulators are looking for solutions. And there's been an interesting amount of back and forth and, and some uh, contestation between industry 
and uh, regulators on AML issues. I mean, the idea obviously is if you have increasingly, not just uh, pseudonymous, but increasingly anonymous-like transactions, then that can be a gateway for everything from narco-trafficking to terrorism finance and, and other kinds of issues. What, what exactly, to your understanding, is that point of friction between industry and the regulators on Yeah, I mean, issues? I think one of the issues is how do you know where that money is going? Um, you know, I think from a regulatory perspective, um, the, the very specific issue is about money, uh, wire transfers, but I think the bigger issue, and those of you who work in traditional financial institutions, you need to know who your counterparties are to a transaction. And so that's what traditional regulators are used to seeing. And then, so if you're looking at this and being told, well, I don't know who's receiving the money, um, you know, that's where you kind of get that. And so those are some, that's where the rub is occurring. Yeah. And um, yeah. The irony is they're going to come around, I think, to a view that, that the blockchain technology is actually central to a big part of the AML fix. And I think a lot of where we're headed in the next five years is going to be around developments in digital identity, where I think uh, blockchain has a big role. Just to give you a couple of figures. so. The UK banks spend more on AML than the UK government spends on prisons. Now, there's an enormous amount of money being put by, by every bank in the world into its AML systems at the moment. And the catch rate is terrible. According to Interpol, we catch, capture between 1% and 2% of the illicit activity. So it's, it's, it's a terrible return on investment for the level of, of time and money that goes into to AML processes at the moment. So we have to get better and smarter at it. Now, one part of it is you know, digital identity solutions. The banks have got restrictions that mean they can't even share information within their own firm across borders on AML threats. They can't share them on a firm-to-firm -firm basis. They don't get a feedback loop from law enforcement. So when they fill in these thousands of suspicious transaction reports, they never find out which one of those went anywhere. So you don't have the depth of the reference data to train an algorithm to get better at AML. Um, so I think you're going to see that, that for you know, given that, that magnitude of that problem and the desire to get better, uh, digital identity with blockchain having a role within it is, is a big part of what we'll see in the next five years. I, I would agree with you. I feel like, sorry, that this builds into a bigger question. You know, we're, this, the G20 and the FATF recommendations really focused on this one little thing on wire transfers. But that's only a very specific type of transfer between financial institutions that is triggered at a threshold level. There's all these other things that companies are doing with respect to onboarding customers, monitoring transactions, filing transactions reports with law enforcement, responding to subpoenas, holding accounts open so law enforcement can, mon you know, I mean, there's a lot that goes on in an AML compliance program. Um, and there's, a, there's many people that agree. I, I'm one of them that agree that I think we need to modernize how we look at yeah, um, AML um, compliance and enforcement. Um, and, you know, like things like your name, date of birth, address, and social security number in the U.S. I mean, I don't know. Does anybody here think that that's private anymore? <laughs> well, that actually is a very good question because the one question that, that no one's really brought up is the um, question of is something a security or not? And even where you have a stable coin, there are certain kinds of questions that arise depending on how you stabilize a cryptocurrency um, uh, and, and, and what are the... Uh, methodologies and technologies and tactics used um, uh, to, to stabilize uh, and to maintain a certain price of a crypto asset, and that becomes very important. Uh, it could even become important for Facebook and other companies. So now we're going to make a shift to a new segment, Chris's World. popular culture, and fintech meet. Now, I'm sure everybody saw Kevin Durant 
blow out his Achilles. And the question I want to know is, what happens when FinTech blows out its Achilles? And it's a question that pops up all the time with FinTech and innovative technologies, especially where you have new technologies and people aren't sure whether or not it's been tested enough and whether or not it's ready for prime time and for the big game. And it's a question that's popping up a bit with Facebook. Right after Facebook announced its new cryptocurrency and its, in, its intent to get into the cryptocurrency business, the Senate Committee on Banking, Housing, and Urban Affairs wrote Mr. Zuckerberg, Mark Zuckerberg, the CEO of Facebook, personally to inquire about sensitive issues surrounding the coin, including whether or not the company has information bearing on its customer creditworthiness, uh, their mode of living, their reputation to establish eligibility for housing, credit, insurance, and employment. You know, they, they ask questions like whether or not Facebook shares or sells consumer information with unaffiliated third parties. And they asked, which all financial regulators probably took a close look at, how the cryptocurrency-based payment system would actually work. And then the Senate uh, folks asked whether or not the firm reached out to financial regulators. Now, this question in particular is very dear to my heart and reflects a sense that for all the great financial potential of big tech moving into fintech, it could still be something that creates a Darth Sidious overlord of uh, payments, a new galactic empire ruling not only communications and not only the internet, uh, but also data and privacy. And so lots of folks are, are obviously uh, concerned. And they're also concerned, uh, even if they're not successful, where you have some kind of ruinous situation if something goes wrong and the system collapses and it upends payments for potentially millions of customers around the world. So with Facebook's release of the white paper, I think it's just important to understand that this is just the beginning and not the end of the story. Kind of like with uh, the Warriors. Like, what are they going to do? What are they going to do with their players? How are they going to rebuild? Are they going to try to rebuild? Anyway, I think it's just important to keep in mind that even with the release of new innovation, including Facebook's new global coin, it's not going to be just Facebook that's going to be making the decisions about how this story ultimately plays out. The regulators and policymakers are going to have a say as well. Well, that's all for this week's FinTech Beat. Thanks for joining us. Excellent. I'm Chris Brummer. Thanks for listening. We want to hear from you. Feel free to email us at fintechbeat at cqrollcall.com or tweet to at Chris Brummer DR. That's at C-H-R-I-S-B-R-U-M-M-E-R-D-R. Join us next time on FinTech Beat, produced by CQ Roll Call.